Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss and drink about our favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Marshausen. And this is our first podcast together. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> you can tell because we had many takes of that. <laughs> you don't get to hear them. <laughs> uh, we wanted to come together on this podcast because we both love murder mystery shows, but very, very specifically, the happy ones. Well, I also like the Scandinavian depressing ones, but they're hard to talk about because they're depressing. Right. And we don't need more of that. Mm -mm. So we're just going to talk about the happy ones. Yes. This kind of was birthed out of the fact that Sabrina and I, while being good friends, never live in the same place. So we tend to have um, long Skype conversations while watching something in the background at the same time anyway, usually playing a drinking game. We used to call those wine and movie nights. So now we have wine and murder nights. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sabrina has already opened her bottle of wine. (laughs) So has Carolyn. No, I haven't. Because it's going to make a nice sound effect when I open it. (laughs) I see. I opened it because it's an actual cork and my corkscrew is torturous. So (laughs) Not a pleasant sound effect. So our idea for the show is that we're going to review a few episodes of the same cozy mystery, five in a row. um, And then you, the listeners, will get to vote on the next five episodes that we get to do. So you can vote to either do the next five episodes in the series, or we can vote to switch up to a different series. Um, We will be putting out the choices on our Twitter account, which is, it's Wine and Murder Night, at Wine Murder Night. Uh, So you should go follow that right away. That will be, we will put everything at pull up after the first five episodes of this show. So I have here, and this is why it's going to make a lovely little sound, uh, the Castiller Stellar Cava, which is not pronounced correctly at all, because I'm sure you're supposed to say it with a Spanish accent. It's okay. But I thought for our first episode, I would do something bubbly. Yay, yes. Wow! <laughs> what are you drinking? I'm drinking a French Vouvray, because I only drink white wines, and I only drink French wines. Now I'm lying. It's either French or Riesling, so... Today it's a Vouvray. I've had this in my uh, in my refrigerator since like 2016. Special occasion wine. No, just uh, didn't have a corkscrew wine. <laughs> oh man! Clearly, we're experts on things, right? We're experts on wines. So I hope we're better experts on murder. Well, I could tell you that. Vouvray is good for pork and fish dishes. I'm actually really good at wine. I'm just really bad at drinking it because I just don't drink very often. So, <laughs> Well, you'll drink at least every two weeks now. Yay! <laughs> All right, so let's get right into it. I'm extremely excited. We're starting with a classic. Uh, we decided to start with season one, episode one. Of Midsummer Murders, the killings at Badger's Drift. Yes. So the thing about Badger's Drift and Colston is okay. 
So I dated this guy from North Yorkshire, which is nowhere near where Carsten is supposed to be. Carsten is, you know, southerly. Um, but I, I dated this guy from North Yorkshire, and he came from this town with like 2,500 people. Uh, and Carsten and Badger's Drift and all the little villages around Carsten, Carsten's like the main big quote-unquote town and then the villages are all around it is exactly like how Leeds and Leeds is a huge city Leeds and then all the towns and villages around it and the town he lived in was actually a town quote-unquote but it was 2,500 people so really and every time I watch these shows I'm transported directly back to this North Yorkshire town um, all the characters are there everything you could ever want. It's so British, it's painful. Northern England is a little bit different from where Coston would have been set, but it's still it's still the same. And I love it. English, English people are definitely like this. If you're ever wondering what English people are like. <laughs> what was, what's, what's really funny to me is that I had, I had found myself while re-watching this pilot writing notes in a very like British slangy way. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Carolyn, Carolyn. <laughs> Carolyn, soon you're going to just like speak like Madonna and no one wants that. <laughs> I think my other favorite thing is very, very specifically about this episode and the first, very, first season of Midsummer Murders is that this, the pilot that we're watching here was filmed in 1997. And so everything about it is so incredibly 1997. It just fills me with glee. Yeah, like, um, the 90s in England weren't like the 90s in, in America. Um, they both were, um, they both had Labour, well, Labour and Democrats. It was Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. So there was this new kind of, um, Excitement. I wouldn't say excitement in England, but kind of an optimism. <laughs> the English don't get excited, so never mind. They were cautiously optimistic. Yes, they were cautiously optimistic. So it was, it was kind of the same thing. So everything was like bright and cheery. And, you know, uh, this was when good British music was coming out. You know, good stuff like Oasis. Um, I was going to bring up Oasis because yeah. I'm a Manchester City fan. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was like Britain was finally, and I mean it, by the 90s was finally getting out of the specter of World War II and mm -hmm. the specter of Maggie Thatcher, long may she run out in hell. So it was, it was very much a different time for Britain and English people in general weren't used to that, weren't used to that kind of good feeling especially after the 80s. So the whole episode starts, and this is my second favorite scene, is this opening bit with this older woman in her 80s. Uh, this is uh, Emily Simpson is riding around on her little bicycle. And my favorite part about this intro is that there are just happy little woodwinds playing the entire time. She's like riding around on her bicycle, searching for an orchid in the forest like doing normal 
octogenarian, <laughs> I guess. Well, is that what octogenarians do? In England, yes. Um, so, back to the guy I dated. Um, <laughs> he had a huge, like, so here's the problem. He was he was the other half. Remember when um, mm-hmm. when it was like, oh, that's how the other half live. Well, he was part of that other half. So he had this huge estate with loads of land, but he was pure old labor, like he thought his land should be open. So we always have these people called ramblers, and ramblers are just people with walking sticks that walk wherever, because Britain has loads of open walkways and open land. And so every morning you would like go out if you were going out, because it was a farm as well, and they would just be walking across like with their sticks, like looking for birds and looking at flowers. and. It was like British people, you, you'd think they're really cold because most people only know their big cities, but like in villages, it's, it's the warmth of a southern town. You know, you speak to people, you stop and you talk and you chat and, you know, it is like that. So it's really weird. Like, it is like that. And news, news travels fast. Oh yeah, very fast. Which, which is illustrated several times throughout this episode as well, so... Mrs. Simpson, uh, Miss Simpson, never married. They bring that up a couple times also. <laughs> uh, she's she's looking for her little orchids. And she's got these stakes that she uses to mark them because she would never dig them up, ever. And on her little search, see, she sees something shocking. And all we see is her dropping all of her stakes and some very male feet coming out of the woods where she saw these two people having sex because they are some very clear sex noises going on. (laughs) And then it like cuts to her like trying to like bike back to her little cottage. And her cottage is named Beehive Cottage. And I thought they actually did a really great job trying like talking, you know, I was talking about the woodwinds earlier. It's like the woodwind, the music changed. But really what got me is like to ramp up the tension was they showed this like entire shot of bees just like buzzing really crazy mm-hmm. and I was like yeah okay some stuff's about to go down well it, she was marked as the first victim almost and yeah. so which is well you know technically the first of the episode um, yes it is midsummer murders after all <laughs> And so I like how they did that. I like how they changed the music almost immediately after she sees this, like, shocking. And sex in public is a thing in England that I was not aware of. Like, I read this this article on this this dude on Vice. He lives in London. But he writes these articles about public sex capades that happen in England. And they happen more often than you might expect, which I find and found a little crazy, like... Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that, that's, not, that, that's not a kink that I happen, happen to share. No, me either, so I'm always like, uh... Well, now it explains why I've never had a British boyfriend, so... I, I mean, <laughs> not all of them. Not all of them. But yes, Emily Simpson becomes our first victim. Because she apparently also doesn't share that game. No. And we get our first introduction to DCI Barnaby and DS Troy. DS Troy has that haircut that immediately marks him as a hot dude. 
in the right in the nineties. Like this is literally my entire note, and I will take a picture and text it to you. Is Troy's hair? What did I say? Let's see. Hot dude, Detective Troy with the nineties hair. That's what I wrote down. Mine said, I said, uh, and this is a very the American cultural reference coming through. JTT from Home Improvement. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, yeah, no. And his the older brother too, whatever his name was. Right. Oh no, I have I have a whole section on him. It's a little bit different. <laughs> uh, no, my note goes Troy's hair, JTT from Home Improvement, and then underneath it it says. Troy's tie, Troy's whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think because clearly I was paying so much attention to the plot. <laughs> but basically, they go through, they find the body, they determine that she could. Uh, we meet George Boulard, the the coroner. Mm-hmm. Um, I love him. He like he's oh, one yeah. of my favorite characters in Midsummer. Like I don't know why I like him so much. I guess he reminds me of like a grandpa. I suppose, like, I don't know, a grandpa who's morbid. Death grandpa. Yeah. But, like, I like how they, it's in Medias Res, like, Barnaby and, oh, fuck, the coroners, whose name I've forgotten. I love them so much. I'm really just... Villar. Yes. George. Yes. You, you can see that Tom and George have done this before. They've worked together before. And I like that that even though this is the pilot episode, there was stuff beforehand. Like, they have a history, which is one of those things that I love about these kind of shows, is that even when we're watching the first episode, everyone comes fully made already. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, like, Midsummer Murders, and, and this this particular podcast, uh, these first ones might be a little bit long because Midsummer Murders is a long show. Like even for a British show, it is a long show. It's an hour and a half. Yes. More than. It's 102 minutes for this first episode. So it's one of those things where they do a really good job of trying to flesh out everything. Mm-hmm. And they also have a lot of twists and turns and that sort of thing. Because it's basically a movie at that point. Like a, a young, a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> but with death. And, you know, weirdos. Uh, this is also the first time that you get to see uh, Barnaby and Troy's relationship ever. And this is this is unlike uh, Barnaby and Billard. They are very new co-workers. Which, of, of course they are. It's the young, you know, the young kid from the city and this old country detective inspector. So, of course, they're going to do that. And that's so English. That's so American, too. Like, the buddy cop shows. You have the old mm-hmm. cop who's about to retire, and you have this young whippersnapper who's, like, who does everything wrong. No, I, I love it. I love it. But the very minute that you get them together, Barnaby has already given him some snark. Well, like, yes, like- because Troy is dumb as rocks. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> Fair enough. Almost immediately after we get our very first introduction to these three characters, and then an introduction to the fact that it is probably murder, um, we get our first taste of Dennis Rainbird, who is the undertaker of Badger's Drift. And 
my favorite character in the entire episode. Well, my second favorite character in the entire episodes. Um, the thing about Rainbird is that the 90s were like early goth. And so here's, here's your village's creepy goth. And I love it because there's still, I still have friends who are like 90s goth to the, to the max. And I'm like, yeah, so he is, he is the nod that the writers obviously had their teenage son or daughter who dressed like this and talked like this. And they were like, oh, well, I gotta put them in the book. I mean, it's based on a book, so she probably had a grandkid who was like, Morrissey is my god! And <laughs> I was like, okay, well, yeah. let me write that down. Oh, What really got me about him is that, obviously, long hair on dudes is a thing again these days, and so I'm, you know, I'm pretty used to seeing it. In fact, two of the guys that I work with have quite long hair, and one of them has, like, the most beautiful hair ever, and I'm jealous that I don't have mm-hmm. it. But he has, like, no hair, and yet he tucks it back in a tiny little ponytail that he do- ties with a ribbon. And I was like, what is that nubbin on your head, Dennis? Like... He wants to be a goth. Let him be a goth. <laughs> he also drives a really flashy Porsche with a license plate that says R.I.P. Right, <laughs> and... And so Porsches are German cars, and in England you've made it when you own a German car. Like, that's just the height of it. It could be a Bimmer, it could be a Benz, it could be a Porsche, but it has to be a German car. No one goes out for, like here in America, it's all Italian, it's Lamborghinis, it's Maseratis, but in England you drive a German car. And you baby that thing, and it is yours. And woe betide anyone who even looks at it the wrong way. Like, like the the plebes and the middle class drive Japanese cars. They drive Toyotas. They might drive a Ford, but you've made it as soon as you step into. And of course, the very rich still drive the Rolls, the Bentley. You know the Land Rovers, or the Range Rovers, rather. So, the, this this Porsche is really the first taste yeah. that we get that the Rainbirds are living above their station. Yeah, because when you meet them, they're dreadfully middle class. But he's driving an upper class car, so that means he's pretending. And class is so important in England, and so important to Midsummer Murders, and too. super important to Midsummer Murders. And it's like they're pretending to to that upper class and they're dreadfully middle class and they're disgustingly middle class <laughs> see so and that actually is a really good introduction to the next scene because the very first people that Barnaby wants to talk to is uh, Emily Simpson's doctor to make sure that she didn't actually like fall and bump her head or wasn't prone to that and I thought that was a very another good illustration of kind of a middle class dysfunctional family yeah. in this whole setting of this idyllic setting. Uh, so we meet Dr. Lesseter and Mrs. Lesseter and Judith Lesseter. Mm. Oh no, the stepdaughter and the stepmother. Like... Oh god. Like, I have never met stepdaughters and stepmothers that do not get along like everybody says they don't. Oh, of course, the, the daughter's jealous or, you know... 
the stepmother never and I'm like that's it's such a weird like fictional trope that I don't really know what yeah I felt like this was actually one of the weakest scenes in the entire show or one of the weakest character writing in the entire show is they were very much falling back on oh well obviously there's the money grubbing wife next wife Mm -hmm. and the daughter who resents her and now they don't know the whole family doesn't get along but they all stay together for money money reasons and for you know for looks and I'm like whatever you didn't have to have the stepmother and the stepdaughter dislike each other. The stepmother could just be one of those women who relies too much on her credit card. Yeah. There's so many different ways you could go with this, but even from, like, the styling on down with Mrs. Lesseter wearing this, like, leopard print blouse thing that, like, is basically the, the 90s evolution of one of those power blouses with the with the shoulder pads in it. Like, it was obvious that they were just pl- falling back on that whole trope, and I, I didn't. I, I was like, eh, we could do better than this. We're all we. Everything else is done better than this. We could. Do yeah, that was that was probably one of the weakest. Like everyone could have answered their questions without the extra sniping because they all looked guilty as fuck. Like, <laughs> like it didn't. Absolutely. It didn't have to. It didn't have to have any of that extra family tension because Lesnar already had it with her sleeping with um, Leahy. So there was already that tension there. They were both sleeping with him. No, so she wasn't sleeping with Lacey. Judith, however, was sleeping with Michael Lacey. Yes. And we get to meet him very, very shortly after because he's like sitting in the driveway. And my entire note on Michael, the artist, because that's what I called him because I didn't know his last name at yes. the time. Michael, the artist, hyphen, Total twat. <laughs> total twat. Yeah. Total twat, sorry. Yes. Total twat. I said, really... I said, ooh, the bad boy artist. <laughs> yeah, basically, such a fucking douchebag. God. Yeah. I could not stand him from jump. Like, don't get me wrong, I cannot deal with, like, the artist vibe as a rule, which guarantees that I'll end up marrying an artist. Like, I can't. I specifically could not deal with him and his like super seventies haircut with his overalls. He looked like he walked out of the Come On Eileen. No, he was trying to be Jim Morrison. Oh my fucking god! You're so right. so the nineties were all about the seventies throwback because that was the last time anyone was ever happy. That was the thing. <laughs> That was that. What I mean, I was I was. We were alive in the nineties. I remember. Yeah, there were bell bottoms. Yeah, so there were all of the. So things. obviously, some people went with the disco vibe. Groove is in the heart. Yeah, you know, and some people went with the come on, baby, love my fire kind of vibe. And he was definitely in the latter. And I don't know why I sang those two. Because you're drinking, and that's why we're having a wine. So we get also to see very quickly that Mrs. Lesseter is stepping out on her man and she receives a phone call and she's being blackmailed. Oh dear. (laughs) But we will get back to that later. Yes. 
So we have more characters to introduce. We've been talking about this show for like 30 minutes already, and we are still not done introducing characters. Recurring characters. Yeah, Dr. Lessiter reminded me of my high school French teacher, not my high school French teacher, my high school German teacher. I only took German for a year before they got rid of the program. But he looked so so much like Herr Braun that I was like, okay, that's weird. (laughs) Did he have like a secret like, movie career that I wasn't aware of. But that's besides the point. I just thought I might put that in for some flavor. Yeah, well, we can just we can just refer to him as Herr Brown. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> so after a hard day's work, DCI Barnaby goes back home. And we get to meet Joyce Barnaby, his loving wife. His loving and misguided wife. I love her so much that she tries... So this is that she's so middle class as well. Barnaby has a very posh voice, but he lives in a very middle class because he's a he's in the police force, so it's not like they make tons of money. He is a detective, so he makes more money, but they're not upper class. But he, I, I suspect he has a very posh voice because he did a lot of Shakespeare in his. Voice. And no, but he probably sat. He was probably he probably went to Cambridge as well, which is where Cuddy goes. But we're not. We haven't met her yet. Uh, but soon, soon. So Joyce is that middle class wife that watches all daytime television because she doesn't work. So she watches a lot of daytime television and gets these weird menu ideas, but can't cook. And that is that is a stereotypical English thing. I don't know if that translates well to American. So house. Okay, I'm really actually very glad you said that. And and this is why I was like, oh no, when I do this podcast, I have to have. <laughs> I just thought it was sexist. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, I was like, oh, they're falling back on something super sexist no, just because. No, it's British middle-class wives who don't have to work because their husbands do something like they're, they're a detective in the police force, or their husband makes enough money that they don't really need two incomes. Um, but that doesn't mean they're super rich. That just means that uh, British people get paid slightly better. No, no, okay, but the, but the cooking thing, the cooking thing is what I, I, I have always latched on to, because this is a, a theme in Midsummer Murders, that Joyce can't cook. Well, that's just, and it, it's not that she's, it's, it, it's slightly sexist, because it is a stereotype, but this was before people got good at cooking. This was before Come Dine With Me and The Great British Bake Off. This was before British people could actually cook, and it's not her. British people couldn't cook before 2000 and, Fifteen. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> or like, when did come down with me start? They couldn't cook before then. Like, like. <laughs> sorry, Jamie Oliver. You tried really hard. I mean, he, but no. That was go. Jamie Oliver was what two thousand five. So it took him a while. He had to learn. So, <laughs> he had to teach an entire nation. Yeah. So the like. It was partly British cuisine is shit, and partly British people can't cook. And they really, like, British food now is good because they're going back to, you know, old school ways of cooking and, you know, food is good. But outside of London and Manchester and Newcastle and the big cities outside of Leeds, even when you get to Sheffield, it's all deep fried and put on a sandwich. So there's there's still spots of England where the cooking is questionable at best. And Joyce's inabilities to cook get driven home in our very next scene the next morning when 
Barnaby renews his desire for justice. Yes. At breakfast. At breakfast. So he has a builder's tea, which is a really strong tea, usually Tetley's or some cheap tea bag, but fortified with loads of milk and sugar. And then he has a full English. Or not full, because he's missing the tomatoes and he's missing the mushrooms, but everything else. And and that is so A, it's male, because he doesn't have a fucking vegetable honestly and b it's english because the english once again just deep fry it and put it on a plate and the beans though the beans okay here's the problem with baked beans in england they have no sugar in them like the baked beans here in america they're just white beans in red tomato sauce that's it and they're disgusting they don't even have salt why? Why would you do that to yourself? So, like, and this is a thing, and it's like a thing, and they like it. Yes. And they eat it a lot. They do. I, I had to, I, once again, going back to the dude I dated. No, I actually really like a full English minus the beans, and he would always eat my beans. Like, I'd just be like, I will eat everything on this plate, including the blood sausage, but I will not. <laughs> not touch the baked beans. So, in 1707, um, Heinz brought over all his, like, not 1707, later, in, like, the 1800s. Um, okay, 1703, Fortnum's and Mason open. And I'm the reason I'm talking about Fortnum's, a store that I absolutely adore, um, was that in the 1800s, the very, uh, Heinz came over from, uh, what, Baltimore? Yeah, he came over from Baltimore and he sold the first tin of baked beans to Fortnum's. So Fortnum's introduced baked beans to England and it's been a tradition ever since. And they, they didn't realize that like baked bean innovation has happened. Okay, so like when I first I went to Cambridge uh, in 2000 and I went from 2004 to 2009 with some breaks in between. <laughs> I went to France, you know. I did. You know, like college students yeah, do. Yeah, anyways. So, I, you know, I graduated. I, I really graduated in 2009. Anyway. Sort of. Anyway. I was an Anglophile. Definitely. Like, of course I was. But I had already gone. See, I had already lived in England. So now I have to go back. I lived in England, but I was sheltered from all that bullshit because I was at a Department of Defense school. So I didn't really know anything. I knew a little bit about British culture. And then I went back when I went back to university. And so I was like, I'm going to have a full English because I'm going, you know, this is my home now. And I put, and I'm used to maple syrup with bacon, you know, the good baked beans that we make, like, Mm-hmm. that we make here in America that's like that you eat with your uh, barbecue and I put the first spoonful in my mouth and nearly spat it out it, was, it is tasteless it's tomato sauce and white beans and kidney beans I suppose and um, it's the worst taste in the world and I've lost I've lost all respect of all British people for that and I apologize <laughs> I think we need to quickly clarify. Sabrina, while having one of the poshest accents known to man, is not British. No, I'm German. And, <laughs> and that makes people angry. 
<laughs> you, 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 dear listener, are probably getting angry right now, just being like, "Why wasn't I born with this voice?" Just to make you <laughs> even angrier, I'm a French teacher. <laughs> so that's why she can pronounce Vouvray very well. So fuck all of you. In case you're wondering, <laughs> it's the. Where are you from? Yes, yes. she definitely. That's a complicated answer. Do you have half an hour? <laughs> we are going to move on. I'm sorry, because <laughs> we I got really angry hour. about fake beans. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay, I got angry about them all. <laughs> so in the next scene, though, we do get to meet my very favorite character of this episode, Iris Raidenbird. Because she is delightfully over the top. And in a single episode of television somebody like this is just such a scene stealer yeah. like so barnaby and troy go to interview the rainbirds about something i forget what oh they had a view of something well they wanted to know and they wanted to interview the people who had the view of the house or the, yes. the view the house with the view yes the house with the view and iris rainbird is the owner of said house and she is just like we said before so dreadfully middle class the velvet couches and the wallpaper and Dennis wheels out this tea oh my god this tea service and I don't I didn't even I didn't write it all down but I specifically latched on to the potted meat diamonds like there were shapes of sandwiches that had different things in them I mean it was fucking ridiculous I, I love everything about it's this. Victorian of course it is so it's a Victorian high tea it's ridiculous it's over the top it just like cements that other middle classness that they think that you need to have a high tea every day at tea and he had like iced sombreros and like the implication was that Dennis had made this all himself mm -hmm. and Troy obviously thinks Dennis is gay like, obviously thinks Dennis is gay and just has a great, real problem with it, which has got me off on the wrong foot with Troy. Well, yeah, Troy is... So, Troy is supposed to be... If you're watching this with your husband, he's supposed to be your husband. If you're a middle-class woman in England, your husband is a giant homophobe in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah, yeah, no. There's definitely context there, but also, like, at the same time, I am me, at myself, in 2018, yes. and I'm just like, oh. You dick, Troy. So Iris Rainbird reminds me of one of the two fat ladies. And the two fat ladies was actually going on at the same time as this. I just looked it up. I had to. Oh, I didn't know. I was like, I was like, what? Where is this tangent going? So this is another Yeah, show. the two fat ladies are these two women who ride on a bicycle. Oh, uh, no, not on a motorbike. And they go uh, to make food and stuff. They, they're, they're chefs. Oh! But they make very British food. Have you never seen it? Have you never seen Two Fat Ladies? No, I've never you seen it. You have to. It used to, like, it's one of my favorite shows. You have to see it. And they make, they make pretty good food. They're actually good. <gasps> oh my god, your reference just got so much better. Because I looked up um, the woman who played Iris, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Sprigg, who has unfortunately passed mm -hmm. away. Um... She was the fat lady in Harry Potter, <laughs> the Gryffindor picture. She's the Gryffindor picture. Nice. Nice. Oops. Yep. Well, that just made my night. Yep. 
learning things on this well there are like five actors in britain and don't worry as we watch midsummer murders we will see them all multiple times there's just there's only five of them and so like these things these connections happen just completely by accident because they don't have enough actors With their interview with the Rainbirds, the Rainbirds are clearly the gossips of the town. <laughs> Mrs. Rainbird insists that she bird watches from her view. Which, you know, people do. As you know, people do. Um, DCI Barnaby is having none of it in a very polite manner. And so they kind of, you know, go on their way, but they've been given some hot goss uh, that uh, Catherine Lacey is really the one to watch out for because she is getting married to the widowed really rich guy whose name I cannot remember at this point in time. Um, Shiza. I didn't write it down. Hold on. Because he wasn't actually particularly important. (laughs) What was his wife's name? Maybe we can go backwards. His wife's name was Bella. And they also find out from the Rainbirds that Bella had died. Grace? Sure, that sounds about right. No, it's Trace with a T. Julian Glover was... Oh, yeah, Henry Henry Trace. Trace. Yes, there we go. Okay. (laughs) This is why I have the IMDb page. Uh You know, have this... Have some sort of semblance of a conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So they find out that his wife, Bella Trace, had died two years earlier in a hunting accident. Also, things that happen with the upper class... it's not it's not unusual and so i have gone on charity hunts and it's just people shoot and very close to each other like closer than necessary and you're like we've all got long guns which um you call them shotguns yeah you've all got shotguns um and you're all like in a joyful mood and you've got the horses and the dogs we don't use the dogs to like hunt they're just there for show well the problem is that Theresa May wants to bring that back because she's desperately middle class as well and (laughs) but um so it's this weird it's really weird now I'm picturing Theresa May at like with an ice sombrero (laughs) Have you seen, as an aside, the pictures of Theresa May curtsying? Yeah, she cannot curtsy to save her life. She looks like, like, I I can't describe, like, I can't describe what she looks like when she curtsies, but it's, it's horrific and she needs lessons. <laughs> so I'm going to just quick skip us ahead a really bit because we have not even gone 40 minutes in this 102 minute show. <laughs> So we get to meet Cully, mm-hmm. who comes out to, to visit her parents because she is learning lines for a play. She's also wearing pants that I used to own in the 90s. Then we get to cut back to the Rainbirds, and Dennis, a good boy in a very weird scene with his mummy. All right, so, uh, this, is actually a full, <laughs> so this is actually a foreshadowing scene. Like, I know it's weird, but like on second watch... Actually, on the first watch, when you find out, you're like, oh, okay, so that's a callback. So it's definitely a disease in the village, but also a disease in England. There are just not enough people. And they 
don't like immigrants. So. <laughs> Only half. Only half. Yeah, exactly. You know, give give the remainders their due. They tried. <laughs> they, tried. they tried real hard. <laughs> so the rainbirds find the blanket of the people that were presumably fucking in And that's place. another little bit of foreshadowing because the blanket is is a tartan and it's very thick and very well made, but it implies some upper classness. Next next scene that we get is we get an introduction to Troy's bad driving. Which I I absolutely love, like how bad but all of his what's weird is all of his sergeants are bad drivers, which is bizarre. It's like a weird trait that kind of goes through them all. I didn't notice that with Jones so much. Yeah. Like, I, I, it was really, really called out with Troy. Like, this, I do love it as a, like, a, the, Joyce's poor cooking bothers me, but, like, Troy's bad driving give me yes. joy. <laughs> that, that, that this is his main trait. Like, if you were to, like, rank the, the sergeants by driving, Troy is at the bottom. Yes, definitely. But it's kind of like a weird, like, all of them have that trait thing. Like, like, we're just going to give it to all of them to make some sort of continuity as if they are all James Bonds or something. Not really. So we get to get up to uh, the Trace Manor, which is being prepared for the wedding, and we get to meet Catherine Lacey, finally. And she's like a little slip of nothing. And I looked her up. Emily Mortimer is an actress who has done a ton of stuff. A ton of stuff. And I immediately recognized... I watched her... I watched this pilot for the first time several years ago at Mm -hmm. this point. And I recognized her right away. But it was one of those, like, where the heck do I know her? Where the heck do I know her? Where the heck do I know her? She was in this movie in the, like, early 2000s called Formula 51. Did you ever watch it? No. Can't say I have. Uh, That's not a bad thing. (laughs) Uh, It's a Sam Jackson vehicle. Samuel okay. Jackson. Uh, oh wait, yes, I have seen it. It's got a- yes. It's the one where he plays a pharmacist or drug formulator, and he's going to like do this big drug deal, and he ends up falling. Like everything ends up going wrong, and anyway, Emily Mortimer plays the ex girlfriend of the guy that he ends up like relying on to like get around Liverpool. And that guy happens to be one of the five British actors. Uh, what's his goddamn name? Uh, Robert Carlyle. That dude. So are we playing Kevin Bacon, like Six Degrees of? Because like <laughs> No, but like everybody knows who Robert Carlyle is, but you have to like, you'll know his face mm-hmm. well before you would ever recall his name. Yes. Well before. This is not like, so I listened to this one movie podcast and they were like, Spike Jones, Spike Jones, Spike Jones. And I'm like, okay, I've heard the name Spike Jones a billion mm-hmm. times and I have no idea what he looks like. And then I look him up and I'm like, I still wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. But Robert Carlyle, I could pick out of a lineup like fucking He's from, like. Is that, wait, Carlyle the one from Trainspotting? The, from Carlyle from the Full Monty. Yeah, which is. One of the five British checks. Yeah. You just, you just, they just show up, like, like we said. The pilot doesn't have as many of the five British actors. Emily, Emily Mortimer is our, is our five British. Yes. Um, but beyond that, so they go to the trace, they meet Phyllis, they meet the rich one. <laughs> and they meet Catherine Lacey, who's the important one. And then they finally go over to 
the cottage where Lacey and her brother Catherine and her brother Michael, <clears throat> the twat, live. And they try to interview Michael and he recounts the story of Bella's death because <clears throat> at this point Barnaby's like, something's fishy here with Bella's death. Yes. And they think that he's very much clued into something's fishy too with the lazy, lazy kids. Yeah, they're just, that's just weird. They're <laughs> just weird. Like, of all of the people in this show, I think the most normal is Phyllis. Which yeah. Which is weird, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. My notes here are not particularly helpful. Uh, Michael recounting the story of Bella's death. What a wanker. <laughs> well. <laughs> just, uh, I mean, he is. <laughs> but I don't remember why. I, I just think he just in general is. I just, I can't get over his fucking hair and his fucking overalls and the fact that he literally said, my work is my life, about his paintings. Yeah, so, like I said, he tries to be Jim Morrison. I know, I hate it. I hate it so much. I would probably hate Jim Morrison if he was still alive. Like, <laughs> I would probably just be like, no. I actually That's love, hard I love the duels, which is you know, not unsurprising. Maybe a bit surprising. I don't know. No, I love the Doors too. But if Jim Morrison was still alive, I'd probably lose that shine real fast. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. What is surprising is that my mother loves the Doors. <laughs> so we move right from what a wanker into uh, another crazy high tea at the Rainbirds, and Dennis Rainbird hears the door. And is brutally stabbed in the neck. <laughs> I mean, brutal. I I can remember like so obviously Mrs. Ra uh, Mrs. Miss Simpson was very much kind of an off-screeny type death, mm -hmm. and I remember being a little bit shocked, especially with the way the rest of this show has has progressed mm -hmm. and how like blood spurty. <laughs> <laughs> this was well. He did get brutal mutter. He did get stabbed in the neck where the blood tends to go spurty. Like, <laughs> like that's that tends to be what happens. I'm not a medical expert, any, but yeah, you know, your aorta, your you know, not aorta thingy, my brother. No, I. Well, I'm not a doctor, death, so I couldn't tell you. But trachea, uh, yeah, it'll. Yeah, it goes. They're so sturdy. Yeah. But I was just not expecting it with the tone of the show, so I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Well, the tone of the show is actually quite dark. Like, I mean, it gets the deaths get kind of weird later, but like early on, yeah. it was, you know, I thought it was dark. No, and, and I, I'm going to get back to that because I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so that's when we kind of go back. We see a quick fight between the Lacey's. Michael's very upset that Catherine's marrying the rich dude. And he's like, why won't you just admit you're doing it for money? Blah, blah, blah. And then they go and arrest Phyllis because they think she had murdered Bella. Mm -hmm. And what's more, she confesses. Like, they do the whole thing with her confessing that... She murdered Bella because she's in love with the rich dude and the whole nine yards. 
But obviously, that's only taking care of the two-year-old murder. Yeah. So <laughs> they actually get more information from Mr. Whiteley, the rich dude's estate manager, mm-hmm. who has been sleeping with Mrs. Lesseter. Yes. I, I remembered a name because I wrote it down. My note on this entire scene, because I need to take better notes, is he looks like he could have been on Charmed. Oh, since I never saw Charmed. You mean Whiteley? Yes, I do mean Whiteley. He just looks like, you know, one of those, like... He looks like an Australian... He looks like an Australian transplant. Like, he doesn't look... <laughs> because English people aren't that good-looking. So they have to get Australians to play the good-looking English people? <laughs> Apparently. I don't, I don't think Whiteley's actor is Australian. I, I, I think he's... No, he's not. I looked him up because I was like, has he been uncharmed? <laughs> he was not, by the way. He was not uncharmed. But, so, like, sorry, people who find English men attractive. I mean, I dated one, but I dated one. <laughs> it's it's the universal healthcare. It makes up for so much. <laughs> but not universal dental care. Yeah. Wah, wah. Oh, wah, wah. I need to get a sad tram- trombone sound effect to go in there. <laughs> I'm gonna get so many letters. Like, why is she such a bitch? <laughs> no. First and foremost, people would have to listen to us to get us letters. That's <laughs> true. Uh, my other note on this excellent scene, because again, I'm an excellent note taker. Barnaby's hair is super red. It is. He is actually a redhead. Well, but this has to be a dye job. Like, this is too red. For how, <laughs> like, for his eyebrows and for how old he already is. Yeah. Like, this is like, oh, we're going to take you to your natural color. <laughs> but also, you're clearly in your late 60s. Yes. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Okay, so they only solved one murder at this point. Yes. Or they think they have. Yes. Or they're not sure they have. They've gotten something. <laughs> they've, found, they've found something. So they go arrest Michael Lacey, because the big thing about my Mr. Whitley coming to see, see them, Whiteley, Mr. Whiteley coming to see them, is that he saw Michael Lacey at the Rainbirds right before they got murdered. Mm -hmm. Again, super great notes. Uh, Michael Lacey looks like a That 70s Show reject. Uh, And also, look at all the sex candles. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) that that was my note from this scene. I mean, yes. But they basically they do they do confront him. He said they find the knife, the whodunit knife in the in his studio, um, and he tries to run, to, tries to flee, and Troy chases him down because DCI Barnaby doesn't run. No. <laughs> another ongoing theme of his of his tenure. Uh, why would he really? He's got these young detective sergeants. I know. Um, and so Troy chases him down, tackles him in the yard, they get him into the back of the car, and you see Catherine Lacey coming up the drive, and he's yelling, I've been framed! I've been framed! And making a little framing motion. Yes. Um, and then the very next scene we get is the wedding. And I was extremely confused, not because of anything plot-wise, but literally, I was like, somehow all of the Barnabies have been invited to the ceremony? <laughs> what? I, like, I, think what the the f- I think the first time I watched it, I was like, that's something strange here. They don't, 
it's not like everyone in Badger Strip knows the cost inside, you know? Mm. And, like, also, Lacey said he didn't even want to go to the wedding. Although, we find out later some stuff. Yes. But it turns out to all be a dream, and so my instincts were spot on. Yeah, I, I that there was no way all three Barnabys would have been at this wedding. I just thought it was weird. I was like this, and then I thought it was weird because it was just kind of some sort of creepy psychodrama, like in the middle of this pretty straightforward show. And I was like, yeah, is this is this Barnaby's mind palace? <laughs> Sherlock is the shittiest show. Oh, oh no. No, I, d- I agree. We will never. We can promise you. Wine and Murder Night promise. Decree, even. Yes. You will not be watching Sherlock on this show. No. Absolutely not. No. So, so I was like... Je refuse! Maybe, maybe if for any re- we decide to do like a charity episode or something like that, you could pay. You can literally pay us to watch Sherlock, and that is the only way. And only possibly. And only the very first episode. Like yes. I'm not watching anything past that. No. No. But this is Barnaby's aha moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't particularly like it. As an aha moment. No. Because, once again, it was this weird psychodrama. It, it, it comes to him in a dream thing, and I'm like, no, that's not good detective work. And it's very out of step, so I'm going to kind of assume that some of you have also seen more Midsummer Murders. It's, it's very out of step with the rest of the series, in my opinion. And I feel like the pilot was just throwing things at the wall to see what stuck. Well, I was I couldn't tell if it was that or if they were trying to be very true to the book. Yes, true. Because I haven't read the book and I haven't and I don't believe many of the other ones were based on a book either. I think it was just this one that was written but it was given credit to the book as well. <laughs> I know. That's Madeline, my cat. I legitimately thought that was a small child. And I was like, are you babysitting someone? <laughs> babysitting and podcasting while drinking. Because, you know, those those activities go together. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was, like, really confused. So, to bring it down from a jovial notch, <laughs> Phyllis commits suicide while in jail. That was another big thing. No, it was really weird. Like, it was one of those scenes that didn't have to happen. No, it didn't. And again, it was one of those things where it's like, are they just trying to follow the book? Mm-hmm. Are they trying to just like build on the guilt of Barnaby because he hasn't found this out and there's already been two murders and now we're just adding to the body count? Yeah, I didn't. That scene was pointless to me. I didn't like it at all. I didn't. But then it, it did lead into my favorite scene of the entire episode, which was... Michael the twat laying Titanic style on his little bed in that white prison suit. Yes. Like, he was just lounging. And he just goes, I would like to get out of jail, please. And I'm like, fuck you. I hate you. I hate you so much right now. I hope you die. (laughs) But yeah, it was definitely very much like, paint me like one of your French girls in this white prison suit thing. 
that that was such a, that was a really good lead in. That was yes. a really good lead. Like I mean, it was uh, the rest of the directing I can like take or leave. It was very whatever. It was mm-hmm. just fine. It was fine. It did this job yes. properly. That was good. Yeah, that was really good to really cement him as an utter utter asshole. Douchebag. Yeah, such a douchebag. Such an asshole. Yeah. And my favorite thing uh, beyond that, so that was great. And then he was, you know, he gives his little alibi for why he should be out of jail. And then at the very end, Barnaby's already left the room, and Troy turns back around and he just points and he's like, "You better not be lying," or something like that. Mm-hmm. You better be telling the truth. <laughs> Troy, come the fuck on! <laughs> <laughs> like you think that's actually intimidating? And then Troy's little finger point. You better be telling. Yeah, Troy is not an intimidating DS. From there, they basically drive around a bunch, mm-hmm. and Barnaby explains the entire end to Troy. And they go visit the Lacey's nanny from when they were young. Mm-hmm. And she confirms that they have been sleeping together since they were, like, 17. And that they're really good at actually, like, putting on a show for people. That they hate each other and whatever and whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, the entire ending is just explained while they're driving around. Yes. Minus the part where literally Catherine Lacey is getting ready for her wedding. And this nanny, who supposedly loves them so much calls them up and tells them they're about to get arrested. So Michael runs over to the big rich house, gets Catherine, and then they go shoot each other in the woods. Yeah. And that's how the episode ends. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah, I mean. There's a button on the end with, like, Barnaby going to see Cully's play and figuring out with one of the obscure references... Yes. That has not come up at all in this podcast because it was super duper obscure. <laughs> and and I just got homesick for Cambridge because they obviously they show King's College, which is, my, by the way, was my college. And so they show King. So that's how. <laughs> you, I'm so posh. I have this accent. <laughs> that's how you. No, but the only way you know you're in Cambridge is if you see King's College. Like, where am I? What is this quaint historical village? Oh, look, there's King's. It's, it's Cambridge. Because fuck Oxford. I winked when I said fuck Oxford, but I mean it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the ending was very obviously the book's ending. Yes, but in the way that it was an Agatha Christie ending, of course, because it's one person explaining to you all the things you were too stupid to realize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess that's the case. I just wish that it had... I love... One of the things I love about Cozy Mysteries, and I love it as a trope, I love it as a trope, mm-hmm. is the whole, like, getting them all in a room and, like, accusing, very Hercule Poirot-type, you know, ending. Accusing the murderer and explaining everything to everybody who could potentially be guilty. Mm-hmm. And this just, him explaining it to Troy, who is canonically as dumb as a rock. Uh, I mean, Yes. What did what did Barnaby say? I actually wrote this line down. You are as politically correct as a Nuremberg rally. And I was like, like, Troy won't get that reference, but 90s English folk will. 
Because, like I said, they had just woken up from World War II. World War II just ended in, like, 1992 for them. So, they get it. So, I guess my question is, uh, so first time, obviously this is a rewatch for us. We have both seen this episode before. Did you figure it out? Um, I knew, okay, I knew it had to be one of the Lacey's. And the reason why I knew it was one of the Lacey's was because the, sh- the scene where Bella gets shot, he wouldn't have had to run all the way back to Thai House. He was near the village. He could have gone to the post office, which was on the other side of the hunting grounds. So I was like, he wanted her to die. I didn't know the whole, like, story, but I was like, he wanted her to die for some reason. So that's as much as I think. I'm not a clever person. <laughs> I did go to Cambridge, but I sat French literature, which doesn't have <laughs> deducting murderers in any any way. Like, I'm I'm not that bright. I'm not that bright. And that's the tagline for the episode. I did go to Cambridge, but I sat French literature. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, it's not like, I'm not a clever girl. I, I think for me, I was very shocked by the incest. I did not see the incest coming, but I think as you're, as you're like, the rain birds were I just thought they were weird. Like the first time I watched it, I thought they were weird, and the second time I thought watched it, I was just like, I did. I mean, I did, yes, it was clearly foreshadowing at that point. Like I understood what was going to happen, but like at the same time, I was still like, this is still weird. <laughs> yeah, I actually closed my eyes at that scene. The first time I didn't close my eyes because I didn't expect it, but the second right. time I was like, I was so grossed out the first time I watched this that I'm closing my eyes. I I had a I had a feeling it was always Catherine Lacey though because she was too small, mm-hmm. you know. Like, and it's not that there aren't women who are super nice and super small and uh, you know tiny voices and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it did feel like an act. And I mean, to her credit, Emily Mortimer was playing a woman who was very strong and very uh, amp- driven in her own way, right? And put on this act but also you were what gave hints that this was an act yeah and so i don't i'm an only child so i have no idea how sibling relationships work which i'm always at a like i'm always at a disadvantage whenever they play siblings because i don't know how siblings are supposed to act with each other i don't know i wouldn't know my mother was an only child too so i have no fucking clue how any of it works so, so i'm like well, i guess do they? Find- I have. Uh, I have a half sister, mm-hmm. um, but she's much younger than me. I am, and she lived with her mom, and I lived with my mom. And so we're good friends at this point. You know, yeah. when we were young, we didn't have a whole lot in common, so we didn't talk that much. But now we're good friends. But my mother has four siblings, yeah. and I was recently at dinner with her and three of her sisters. And it was a very, very typical family dinner for that side of the family Mm -hmm. in that they just all talked over each other. And it was pleasant and it was funny and we had a lot of laughs. Like that's kind of how we all interact. But it's loud. (laughs) It's so loud. Yeah. And they so disagree on all the finer points of anything. Like oh, did we live in this house when this happened? No, it was this house when that happened. Like, I mean, so I could definitely understand where you get the, like, siblings who fight all the time kind of trope from. So, mm-hmm. like, that part didn't ring false to me. Mm-hmm. 
It was more that her entire, like, her demeanor, like, oh, I'm so sweet and innocent, and I have this tiny little voice, and I just wanted to bring mushrooms to the rainbirds, and all of that. Like, I was like, who the fuck brings mushrooms to their fucking neighbors? Maybe that's just me being not British enough to care about (laughs) mushrooms. (laughs) Mushrooms are delicious, though. But no, like, when he explained it, I obviously got it, but, like... The problem is, sometimes the camera doesn't linger enough on the clues that would help you along. Like when he pointed out that there were three bedrooms and only one bed had been slept in. Well, one, obviously the nanny doesn't live there anymore, so she wouldn't sleep in that bed. But, and then, but I was like, well, Lacey could be sleeping with her fiance. This is the 90s. It's not. Right. (laughs) It's not Edwardian. Like. She could totally be sleeping with him. It's not. So I was like, well, that could be a reason. All the siblings could be fucking uh, whatever. So, sure. Right. Well, so for me, it was more like she just made her bed. Yeah. Like, how hard is it to make your bed look not slept in? I do it pretty frequently. I don't like. I don't make my bed, so I don't. You know, whatever. I don't know. I do it sometimes. Like, like I do it before a trip. Right? And then you come home, and then your bed looks nice, and you're like, ah, it's like being in a hotel again, but it's my bed. I do. Yeah, I do. doesn't mean that I've never slept in that fucking bed. That's true. I just put the covers where they're supposed to go. So that was a kind of Agatha Christie hint. Yes. um, Or like a Sherlock Holmes hint, I should say. I guess, yeah. Powers of deduction. Yes. Did you like the episode? Um, yes, there was a lot going on, though. Yeah. It, it was it was a strong episode with one or two things that could have been taken out and not done anything to the structure of the plot. Yes, I agree. I agree. And I am very excited. Spoilers! Uh, we get to see some of the same actors from this episode again. Yes. In Midsummer Murders. Because there's five actors... <laughs> in Britain. <laughs> yeah, basically. They have basically. to. And it's not like this show had a shit ton of money either. Was it an ITV show? I mean, if it was a BBC show, that was definitely not a lot of money. But, um... Uh, let's see. It was ITV since 1999. Okay, so for the first couple of years... <laughs> Oh no, it's it's been ITV since since the beginning. So ITV yeah. ITV has a little bit more money to get you a little, far many more actors. If you're a BBC watcher because you've watched it on PBS, you're like, do they not have any other actors? No, the BBC has no money, so it's the same five <laughs> actors. It's like back in the golden days of Hollywood when everybody works for one studio. <laughs> The BBC has no money and thus cannot afford anyone. And um, the fact that they can no longer afford Benedict Cumberbatch tells you all you need to know about the BBC. So, like we said in the beginning, we will be watching five episodes of Midsummer Murders, which actually will take us through the entirety of season one because it is British. Uh, (laughs) So, we hope you enjoyed this pilot episode of Midsummer Murders, and we hope you enjoyed this pilot episode of Wine and Movie Night, so we will... Wine and Murder, because... Wine and Murder Night. Murder. Wine and Murder Night. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Wine and Murder Night, and I hope you will join us next time for 
Uh, Midsummer Murders, Series 1, Episode Number 2, Written in Blood. Oh. <laughs> I'd like to thank Anton Koryukov for our introduction music, The Simple Life, off the album Restart. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. You can find me on Twitter at Classicity. I'm Serena Marshausen. You can find me on Twitter at SDMWrites. And this has been Wine and Murder Night. <laughs>